Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt. This week we have a bit of a different episode for you guys. This was an episode that was on our Patreon feed that we've decided to put on our main feed. Because Emma is so awesome and we normally won't be doing this but we had so much positive feedback from this episode and we just had to share it and we'll probably have Emma on again. And so a quick preamble before we get into you actually listening to the episode. <laughs> Emma and I connected over Instagram and we started talking about queer purity culture. Emma has done a lot of research. She has a master's in museum studies and she also is the founder and president of the Queer and Catholic Oral History Project. And she'll get into talking about that. Super interesting getting into the intersectionality between Catholicism and queerness. And it works out well because I'm queer and Jessica is a former Catholic. So we both yeah, had plenty had to. to relate to during this episode. And Emma is so articulate and bright. And it was really, really fun getting to record with her. Yeah. And so if you do want to support us on Patreon, these are the kind of episodes that you can expect on top of maybe episodes of Sarah and I being more silly. We do have quite a mix. And so if you want to support us, it's patreon.com slash heaven in a miniskirt. And for our patrons, we're hoping to have two bonus episodes in October to make up for the fact that now this is free for everybody. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. And thank you again for all of your support. We really, really appreciate it. Yes. Love you. Bye. Bye. So this is Emma Seaslick. And Emma, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so my name is Emma Seaslick. I use she, her pronouns. I have currently have about seven years of experience working in museums. Most of my experience occurs in the context of collections management and preventive conservation. But alongside my career in museums, I've been really interested in conducting research into religious environments. Um, It first began in college when I was attending Ball State University. I became involved originally with a project focused on the historical experiences of Jewish people living in small town Indiana in the 20th century. And as part of that experience, I was curious about how it transferred or conflicted or compared to present experiences. And so from that first ethnographic study to then shifting on to investigating the readoption of failing traditions in 21st century women, the politics of Brad Trad femininity within Catholic subcultures, I was also really interested as a queer woman myself to dig into the histories of my own lived experience within religion, specifically histories of homophobia, but also histories of purity culture that I never knew was part of my experience. (laughs) I definitely, I had grown up and gone through like a good deal of purity culture experiences, but the most accessible purity culture, like narratives that are presented online are often cis white straight women. 
whose experiences are completely valid, but just didn't reflect who I was. Yes. Not seeing that I was really committed to coming out with my story and by doing that to help increase representation. So other people I've spoken to know that yes, purity culture can exist outside Christian evangelicalism. And so how did this come to be? So I guess like we, as I do often, I'll just chat with people from all over the world on our Instagram. And that's how Emma and I connected. We had a really great conversation just talking back and forth about purity culture and then how the perspective might be different for a queer woman and how a lot of what we see represented just because the majority of women happen to be straight. So that's the experience that we see more so. And I think that I've never really given much thought about how it might have impacted me from a queer lens. And so we thought it would be fun to do a podcast specifically speaking to the experience of queer human beings. And obviously, my perspective will be a Canadian gay woman, gay, queer, I don't know, whatever identity you have. But I think it'll be interesting to talk about our different experiences growing up. And Emma, are you American? I am. I am American. Yeah. Yes. And Emma, and I think we were talking like timelines, and I think we are about like nine years apart. So it'll be I think so. interesting yeah. hearing oh, okay. your experience of growing up like in the 2000s and the 2010s as well. Oh, nine years younger than us. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, <laughs> she's nine years older than us. That's crazy. Because usually people are older. <laughs> That's like a you're old. <laughs> you know how when you grow up and you're like, everyone's older than me. And like you then you get like a doctor and they're like younger than you. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so yeah. this is how I feel right now. OK. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Whoa, because I was like, wow, we're going to learn a lot about the 90s. And I was wrong. So sorry. <laughs> but it sounds like from, it sounds like within your work and research, you have a very strong background on the impact of purity culture going back. With my perspective based in, in history and historical analysis, a lot of my like initial understandings of purity culture actually came from historic accounts of reading different texts that were published in the early 2000s about 1990s experiences. So oh, oh cool. <laughs> I feel That's very be- grounded yeah. in that era. So this is just, is this a personal interest for you? You said you were, you're doing museum work and then this is just, so is this a hobby of yours? Like, which this is a hobby of ours. So there's like, I feel like we're kindred spirits in that way. I think that's a great way to put it. I think for myself, I would consider this like, so my process of researching and writing Um, including being the founder and current director of Queer and Catholic, a CLGS oral history project focused on documenting queer joy, but also queer trauma within the Catholic Church is very much part of my own deconstruction experience. And for the goal of that, to provide others with representation so that when they are in the process of deconstructing their own harmful and traumatic experiences, they see someone both visually, but also like written wise reflecting what they grew up with and what they experienced so very much Mm -hmm. trying to help little baby Emma out there who I don't know but is really trying (laughs) (laughs) and so were you raised Catholic I was and same and then I don't know how much you listened to the podcast but like then I ended up going to like the more I brought her to Baptist church and then to like New Frontiers, charismatic, non-denominational sort of. Yeah. So most of my purity culture uh, experience was in the more non-denominational and Baptist space. So actually, this will be quite interesting to talk about the Catholic side of it. So you were raised Catholic and I I was hoping maybe you could touch on before we dive into like the meat of your research, like how much were you taught 
as a young person in the Catholic church about purity culture and what were the things that you learned and really internalized? That is a great question. Cause I think from my own perspective, very much how I came to this was I was raised in a very conservative Polish Catholic church growing up. So it was very much in the same way of like folk Catholicism within each like cultural brand and cultural significance. And so for me, it was one of those things where growing up in the church, I had never heard anything about purity culture. So my growing up, there was always this understanding of the emphasis on purity. And as raised in Catholicism, this emphasis on a very strict theology of the body and the mind and how those two connect or disconnect. And so for me, the only like definitive experience that I can point to that highlights it was when I was in middle school, I attended a retreat called the True Beauty Retreat. And it was a... <laughs> of your expression. Oh, I bet it's really cool. <laughs> not problematic at all. <laughs> not, not at all. What, what do you say? That? You can just tell from the title. Yeah. 100%. So it was one of those things. It was a week-long retreat and I attended it. It was put on by our older religious education instructor and director at our church. And the point of the retreat was to bring together young girls in the religious education program at my parish, but also surrounding diocese with the intention of like formating a very like Catholic centered view of female sexuality and gender. Um, So very much in the retreat, we had the experiences of, well, like, let's come together in a small group and pray for our future husbands. Um, (laughs) It's going to get there. Um, And so we would do that. And also it was the same rhetoric around like female theology of the body, which I found really interesting now dissecting it of, well, you have this internal beauty that's incredibly important to you, but we're going to bring in Mary Kay to give you makeovers. Um, Interesting. And then at the same time, very much, like supported by all of the theology of the body I had learned in religious education. There were the same metaphors of tape. Like you put a piece of tape on your arm and you peel it back and you see all the oil and the hair that goes with it. And then if you're trying to put it on somebody else's arm, it's not going to be as sticky. And that's supposed to represent- You're going to lose all your stick. That that is uh, definitely a metaphor we haven't talked about. So there's another one, the tape. Oh, good. There was like the flower with the petals and then the gum. And so now we have the tape. All right. Yeah. (laughs) The cup that everyone backwashed into. Oh, Oh, (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, very much in the same way of like, we have the tape, but we also had the candle metaphor, which I guess in a Catholic church makes a lot of sense where they would take out a candle Mm -hmm. and they would take out a match and they'd light it. And of course, beautiful before the candle is a nice, perfect, clean white wick. But afterwards it's all crumpled. It's all black. It's all dark. And the candle doesn't look like it did originally. So strangely enough, those are two, just as you said, those are two. That's so horrible. The candle one is awful. Yeah, there are two, like, those are two that I tell people about. And like, in like mainstream, like yeah. evangelical Christianity, people are like, I've never heard those. I'm oh, like, really? Oh, I like I've never names. heard the candle one. <laughs> I like that. I love the candle one because it actually is very specific to Catholicism because they yeah. love candles. <laughs> so it's perfect. So it's one of those things where I was on retreat. And then like the crowning blow, I think, was that like it was, so it was an overnight retreat and we were all staying in the church basement and they brought us all up when the church was completely dark and silent and quiet. And they had us each form a line at the back of the church and then walk up the center aisle with a white rose and place it in a vase next to the Virgin Mary on the altar. So 
<laughs> very ritualistic like yeah so for me I it was one of those things where like I I finished the retreat I walked away and I was like this is hilarious like not in a denigrating way because I'm sure it has mm-hmm. meaning and value to other people but I walked away and was like this is really harmful and I I see the problematic part of this like I'm not going to take this with me this is not like this is not theologically important that's good yeah but it was very much something where I like laughed it off and then like as I got further into high school and even into college like I started to see that like really rigid sexual ethic of like mind and body solidify and it's like oh dang it I took it with me oh no you always do you you always do (laughs) yeah even if you're like this is dumb because like it's actually very interesting that you had enough maturity to realize that it was a bunch of bs but I feel like a lot of girls in that instance you, you when you're that age you're like well the adults know what they're talking about and the adults are right and I mean it's a beautiful fairy tale that God has picked this one special person for you and like they're probably at a retreat praying for you too but then like the actual I don't know that's then you have real fucking life and that's not how life goes and I think it leads for a lot of like disappointment and it's complicated too for someone with a queer identity. Were you aware that you were queer at the time? Like when you're at that retreat? Yeah, this is like an interesting question. Because yeah, I'd be really interested to que- to queer compare and contrast <laughs> our queer identities. And Let's like queer if you were together. aware versus not. Like I know it's a classic question. Yeah. Like how did you know? When did you know? And <laughs> everyone hates that question. But I think it's interesting in the context of the church because like you're, there's no other story or narrative here for you represented. It's just okay, you're going to marry a man, you're going to be a virgin till marriage, and sex is penis and vagina. It starts when the man enters, and when he comes, it's done. Like, that's all. (laughs) That's the only option you have. (laughs) You have one choice. I think for me, so I will phrase it in the sense of, like, I grew up as a very neurodivergent person, even though I didn't have the, like, terminology to use that. So the same as you say, like, that was a really, like, self-perceptive moment to be like this is real problematic (laughs) the same of like growing up in the church it was especially difficult because like I had a better understanding of like what physically was happening but didn't always have the emotional dexterity to like process it so like growing up I for a whole like good segment of time was terrified of going into the church because I understood the like physical practicality of someone being crucified, but couldn't like emotionally, it was okay for us to be in a space with somebody crucified on the altar. So (laughs) I will say um, from that perspective, like I grew up and I think I always had an understanding that I was different and there was something different about my gender and sexuality. And so I would say that I myself didn't come out to myself until late in high school and early in college, just because I think as this intense sexual ethic was ossifying within my body, it had extended itself to the extreme that it was pushing away any sexual thoughts, any sexual desires at all. So I couldn't understand who I was even attracted to if my body was actively repelling everything. So as a kid, I knew it was wrong and I knew it was different. And I think I knew inherently that let's pray for our future husband. I was like, are they even going to find me? Because I don't feel like I'm going to find them. And again, this understanding that I don't think that is the interpretation of my perfect partner out there, or that like, I don't even think that somebody is out there praying for me because there's something wrong with this queerness that I experience with internalized homophobia. I find it 
fascinating like from the Catholic perspective because I feel like that is very different when I was growing up I heard pray for your future husband write your future husband letters and like you know every day parents should be praying for their children's future spouses I will say I never got that messaging in the Catholic Church I think the context of Catholicism in like Eastern Canada, I think what you have is a lot of like traditional Catholicism. And so people will go mostly once they have children, they'll get them baptized, they'll do catechism, and then maybe the child gets confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. And then they stop going. But I think (laughs) that pattern seems to happen because like there are people we went to high school with, they didn't wait till marriage to have sex and they don't really care. But then you see like, oh yeah, my grandma wants me to get the baby baptized. So we're just going to do that. It's almost like more of a tradition as opposed to like the intense belief system because within evangelical circles, like your whole point of existence on earth is to proselytize and to get more followers for Jesus. And I know there are evangelical Catholics, but the Catholics that I grew up around, I would say, were not out actively proselytizing and trying to like save souls from hellfire. I don't know about your experience within the context of like the Polish Catholic Church. I am curious, was it more evangelical? Like, it just sounds like it, it had some interesting tidbits of what sounds like evangelicalism. I think you're right. I think what I've discovered throughout my research, and a lot of it has been incredibly helpful with the Queer and Catholic Oral History Project in encountering people that have had these experiences on a wide range of spectrums. Just like you say, there are a lot of people I meet where like this concept of virginity prior to marriage or lack of sexual contact in any way is connected to their experience of church and their experience of faith, whereas other people don't. Um, But I will say you're very right in that, as I've discovered, I think in the late 1990s, but especially in the early 2000s when I was coming of age in the church, I think there was an understanding that the Catholic church had adopted the like language and terminology of purity culture, along with the programming tactics, and built that into their own theology of the body. So just as you're saying, like my understanding and my experience of purity culture within the Catholic Church is wildly different from others, because I think it was context dependent on the time period. At that time, people were looking around and seeing that purity culture, for better or worse, was having a deep psychological impact on all of these children. So because of that impact and because of how it was affecting, benefiting, (laughs) hurting people, they decided to co-opt some of those strategies. So it it was very funny. The only time that I, the first time I will say that I learned about purity culture was I was in college um, at Ball State University um, in rural Muncie, Indiana. (laughs) And um, I was working as an oral history research associate on the Muncie LGBTQ plus history project. It's run by an amazing professor, um, Dr. Emily Johnson. And as part of that project, I had started out with an interest in the LGBTQ plus community with a specific focus on religion. So it was right after I had conducted my research with the Jewish population in Muncie. And I was like, hey, I can take on this specific this specific area of research within your project, would you be interested in my contributions? And so I had spoken with the only queer affirming wedding videographer in Indiana, the entire state. There was only one? What? There was only one? One. What year was this? (laughs) Man, what? I graduated college in 2021. No, 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 no. (laughs) 
I, I also forget, okay, like wildly different contexts in Canada versus the United States. Very like, true. Mar- That's very fair. You, your country has issued an alert. Yeah, like <laughs> they're like, don't travel there. I'm so sorry. Uh, so yeah, continue with your story. I'm sorry. I was just shocked. It's. I think it's important because it's one of those things where like, Having like moved to a large city to do some of my museum work, I think the biggest impact for me is being around all people that have experiences like yours, which I am so grateful and so thankful that they had those experiences of like, what the heck? What do you mean you had purity culture experiences? What if you mean you were raised in like a really queer phobic Catholic church? What do you mean? So I think it's important to recognize as well that there are people that are living in conditions of intense queer phobia an intense purity culture to this day. Because a lot of people I speak to are like, man, like that's really rough. And I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm glad we live in the 21st century and things are better. And I have to caveat say that it's not always better. And there are still systems that continue to impact and hurt and harm queer people, especially Mm -hmm. trans and non-binary folks within religious circles. So I was speaking with the only queer affirming wedding videographer in Indiana, and they were speaking about their experience and sharing with me this understanding of struggling within a specific campus ministry with very like evangelical Christian parents. And the first time purity culture popped up in the interview. And I think for myself, I was wildly unprepared of, okay, I've heard about it. I've heard about this cultural experience. I've heard of the specific book that was written by, I think, Linda K. Klein. It was one of those things for myself, especially where I was like, "Mm, some of your experiences within like evangelical Christianity are sounding super familiar to me in the worst way possible. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, And so I took a step back after that interview. It was incredibly meaningful. And the person was a wonderful contributor to the project and started to unpack how purity culture very much like the terminology, the programming tactics, the metaphors that were being used were the same as my own experiences. But when I first encountered narratives like Linda's, it was only white, straight, cis, Christian, evangelical women. So I didn't really think that it really applied to my situation within Catholicism or could even extend. Mm. Now I'm of the full understanding that purity culture exists in multiple different manifestations and religious traditions, as well as social ones, which is important to note and to highlight. It even extends today in different levels of local control and bodily policing. So for me, I took that step back and I was like, my goodness, I should really look into this. And it was coinciding at the same time that I was looking into Catholic veiling traditions. So a specific number of like 20 to 35 year old Catholic women who were readopting this pre-Vatican II traditional oh, yeah. called like a white oh. chapel veil. I've seen that on TikTok. <laughs> I could talk about it all day. And so for me, it was one of those things where I undertook the project with the same professor. I had researched the Jewish cultural experience in Muncie, Indiana. And I approached the project really after one class and went up to my professor and had said, hey, can I like dig into this? Can I like conduct a research, full-on research study I later would go on to interview 30 women from across the United States and North America about their veiling traditions. But as I was going through the research and undertaking the process, a trend kept coming up in all of the conversations where like this specific 
devotional, which is usually coded as white for an unmarried woman or brown or black for a married woman, was again tied to this element of physical and mental purity. And so for me, it was a really interesting like co-experience between myself dissecting and deconstructing my queer and purity culture experience in the church, now having that terminology to understand it. But then at the same time, having this moment where something, this the veils I had seen growing up my entire life in the Catholic church was again, cementing that purity culture had existed. It was one of those things where part of my body was like, maybe you just imagined it. Like maybe this really horrific thing that happened to you wasn't as horrific as you think. Again, self-gaslighting, especially by an institution of like, your experiences weren't that bad. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But like seeing the veils and conducting this research, I was then able to say, well, no, like I'm looking at this. I'm speaking with people who are deeply affected by this. Not to say that everyone who veils or chooses to adopt this tradition believes in those same connotations, believes that they imply the same thing. I've met with wonderful people that choose to veil out of their own volition and their own religious meaning. But it was really powerful. And that's what kind of set me on this exploration of gender, sexuality, religion. Wow. wow. <laughs> we'll have to link those. In yeah. The can show we notes. link those? In the, okay. Yeah. Because I, well, first of all, I really want to read it. And then yeah. our listeners will probably be interested too. That is so interesting because it is something that I have seen on TikTok, which is like where I find everything now. And it's fascinating because again, you don't want to like judge people and be like, oh, you're just falling into these patriarchal roles. But like, that is my initial instinct. But I'm, I try to just like take a step back sometimes and be like, there has to be more of a reason that people do this. It's not so simple. So after the veil, the veiling research, what was next for you? That's a great question. It was a question for me as well. It was a question for me as well. So I was just coming out of college. I had a wonderful friend group in college that I will say was incredibly supportive of my own growth. It was definitely, I like stumbled upon like this queer group of friends that I still am very close with that understood like that something intense was going on, even though none of them really were like part of any churches growing up, but were really supportive of my growth. And so I graduated college. I had this interest in mind of I need to deconstruct my own experiences to understand what I'm going through. Also, you're living through a pandemic. That's a lot. God, (laughs) right when you graduate too. (laughs) So for me, I like was leaving college. And for me, because of the job market at the time, I thought that the best natural step forward would be to go to graduate school. So I had applied around and with all of my background work in collections management and museums, I applied for museum studies programs, master's programs across the United States, and I was very grateful to get into a a good selection and ended up attending George Washington University for my master's of museum studies. So it was one of those things where I attended the school and there was so much information that was coming to me about the ethics of museum studies, the politics of sacred objects, which is my specific focus in museums. But at the same time, as I was going through all of this and learning, my deconstruction was still happening. So I was still trying to process what I had been through, but also find an outlet for me to keep researching these topics and writing about them and increasing representation. So throughout my graduate studies, I kept writing, I kept sharing my experiences. I really developed a fondness for researching religion which I was able to do alongside my studies in graduate school, which was really nice. And during that experience, about a year into my graduate studies, I had 
been going through my own experiences and along with trying to find examples of Catholic purity culture narratives, like people's experiences on the web at all. Mm-hmm. I also couldn't really find anyone's like queer Catholic experiences. Granted, there are wonderful scholars out there who have developed a number of books about specific communities, such as priests work within HIV and AIDS pandemic experiences, along with lesbian and queer femme women of faith, um, women religious who were experiencing their identities and love within convents, within cloistered life. But there wasn't really any experiences of people just existing as queer and Catholic, especially experiences where like there wasn't any concrete examples of people who had stayed in the church or who had documented them like wrestling with what that meant of like, am I part of an institution that continues to perpetuate queer phobia? Am I contributing to it? Is my being part of it an act of complicit intention? And so I reached out to Dr. Bernie Schlager at the Pacific School of Religion. And I had asked him if there was any sort of, because I'd been investigating across the U.S., if there was any sort of like whole archive dedicated to queer and Catholic experience, because I figured, of course, there should be like, there should be somebody out here who's documenting all of this. And strangely enough, I came up empty of there was no real archive of any experiences. Nobody was creating a document both of like Catholic trauma and Catholic harm affecting queer people for the reason of keeping an institution accountable and also making sure that this gaslighting I experienced can't happen because somebody can say, this is real. These experiences are valid. This is fascinating. And I just want to say like, because Catholics and queer people, that's two huge populations. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's going to be an intersection of and like the Venn diagram it's gonna overlap so this is actually quite fascinating that there's a lot of talk about evangelical and the queer experience within evangelical churches or in baptist churches but so what you're saying is that like this is something that you have developed Mm -hmm. wow so I reached out to Bernie Schlager and (laughs) and I love Bernie dearly Bernie had said well if it's you who keeps getting this reoccurring thought in your head of there should really be this archive where does this archive exist then it's probably you who's meant to create it so in summer 2022 i then founded the queer and catholic oral history project with the help of bernie and currently we've interviewed about 22 people so far with lifelong interviews ranging from trans and non-binary ministers and priests within the catholic church including the old catholic tradition also closeted LGBTQ plus people who are currently going through the ministry, currently in seminary, and also speaking to people just at their own intersections of experiences about why they chose to stay or why they chose to leave. My goal for the project also is to collect the experiences and remarks of parents who were raised in the Catholic Church and chose to say just a little queer Catholic Emma down the line can be like, oh my goodness, there are affirming like people. There are affirming mm-hmm. people that are creating these spaces. And I think it's so interesting because we often like we see the statements that institutions have, like this is our statement of belief. And yes, the Catholic church is obviously not queer affirming, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's, I'm not sure percentages, but there's definitely people in every church that would be queer affirming. Like the Baptist church isn't queer affirming, but the vast majority of people in our generation that I know that are Baptist like are queer affirming. So I think it's like at this really interesting point that we're going to see a huge 
change culturally in the next like generation or so? I think that's one thing that's been really instructive throughout the process. So I will also say that this past summer, so summer 2023, I had been working and actually shared a post on the outreach website founded by Father James Martin within the Catholic Church about my purity culture experiences as a queer woman for the exact reason of increase in representation. And he had also learned about my queer and Catholic oral history project and invited me to the second annual outreach conference to be a panelist on the Catholic lesbian experience panel. Wow. (laughs) Wow, That is so cool. We especially love the title. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it was there where I was sharing about these experiences and from the people that I met in that room and people I've encountered through my own research, I think there is a big point of contention about welcoming and affirming queer children and queer members of the church. And I think it's one thing, especially as we, as the church is developing this system of synodiality and the synod is increasing representation of people's views and their beliefs and their beefs with the Catholic church. I'm hopeful that will then influence somebody in a position of power to like publicly come out and say and affirm these queer people within the church and those who have left why do you think that the Catholic Church, in terms of maybe more like American coverage, has almost flown under the radar? And this could just be my own, like what I have come across in the news and everyone has their own algorithm. It's almost like flown under the radar a bit about not being queer affirming, whereas a lot of other churches are maybe coming under fire. Is this something that like you thought about? Like, why aren't we really mad about Catholics not being queer affirming? I think from my perspective, especially with what happened Um, So funny story. I was working with the Smithsonian Folklife Festival because I'm also really interested in accessibility of cultural heritage events, which is also what I do in museums. Oh my God. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But you're like the coolest person we've ever met. Like, (laughs) But I was on the National Mall when Roe v. Wade fell in the United States, which was a surreal moment. But I think especially in the wake of this in the United States, that was the main focus that everyone had in the Catholic Church, because as such a big opposer of abortion, opposer Mm -hmm. of choice, there was this understanding that was the main issue that the church had intervening with public and legal affairs. Um, So that was the foreground. But I think you're exactly right. I think from a lot of perspectives, I think there's not as much representation of like, which exists of Catholic people whose parents have like forced them into conversion therapy, Catholic people who experienced queer phobia, um, and a lot of people who experienced internalized and implicit homophobia within the Catholic church, often through a veil of silence from their parents and their communities about if queer people even existed, that isn't as documented. And because of that, there isn't as much outrage about like the Catholic Church is terrible to people. What are they doing? Which is very true for the harm that they've caused queer people. But especially as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, when I tell people I was raised Catholic, there's an automatic assumption that I must have left the church because the Catholic Church just cannot coexist. It's like water and oil with queer people's identities queer people cannot exist cannot thrive within the church so i must have left i want must have abandoned this part of my meaning and that's what the oral history project that i've been conducting is challenging that this dichotomy is a false one and one that's both like supported by church teaching and forcing out queer people um by like extenuating that this dichotomy exists that they're not Mm -hmm. welcome and they cannot exist and thrive 
but also documenting people who have stayed or are finding ministry or are finding peace within Catholic churches or even different like branches of folk Catholicism. So bringing it full circle to what we talked about, like a lot of what I hope to research and what I've been conducting interviews about is Catholic mysticism, folk Catholicism, folk Catholic practices, Catholic witchcraft, <laughs> which are which are avenues where people have found meaning with Catholic devotionals like rosaries, Marian statues, liturgy of the hours, but are able to use them and worship and find meaning on their own terms outside mm-hmm. of the Catholic church itself. One thing I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about, because obviously like where we can talk about our experiences as like queer women, but I wonder for like people that are like gender non-conforming or transgender non-binary, how that impacts. And like, if you've had a chance to interview people and their experiences. So I will say like with full disclosure to myself, because I have to acknowledge my own privilege. Like I am a white queer cis woman. So the people that I've spoken to have been incredibly helpful and eye-opening, but I don't claim to speak about the experiences if it's my own. But from what I've encountered over the past several years, things have worsened of specific bishops creating guidelines where they will not issue new birth certificates, bishops that will not welcome people with new names into the church. And there's been a lot of pushback, especially against trans and gender affirming health care. And so that's been the big one. And this was specifically, it was recently with a, um, trying to remember, Um, It was a specific release of an anti-trans document. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here it is. So it was released in 2019, and it was an official statement from the Vatican rejecting the idea that people can choose or change their genders and insisting on sexual complementarity of men and women to make children. So it was actually released during Pride Month. Oh my God. Yeah. Great timing. It was really bad. Everyone was very upset. So it was released. This specific document, it was immediately denounced by a lot of LGBTQ plus Catholics and even people outside of the church as a way of like enforcing like Catholic anti-trans and anti-non-binary identities. So the text is called male and female. He created them. And so from that document that was released in 2019, then a huge number of bishops and Catholic leaders around the world, especially in the United States, are passing then these decrees and guidelines within their own church archdiocese and dioceses that speak about not allowing people to change their name, forbidding people from undergoing gender affirming health care, impacting this at Catholic hospitals that would provide this care and forbidding it oh wow I didn't even think about the implications for Catholic hospitals I didn't think of that either because that would be huge do you know of any maybe ramifications that have come from that have you seen anything like within the Catholic community from my own experiences and this is only from conversations that I've had with people the big impact is like not some churches have been understanding just as we said that there are affirming parishes out there although few and far between and difficult to identify but have created a space for people to transition safely and exist within their true identities within these sacred spaces within these worship spaces but over and all the issue is that the catholic church just as we've spoken to wields a great deal of political and social power whether it be in which systems of healthcare it offers 
which government ties that it offers, which Catholic and severe far-right Christian officials are then passing on legislation and guidelines that affirm what this anti-trans and anti-non-binary document is affirming within Catholic circles. So the effect, I think, is a lot more within this invisible strain of well, this was a, just a document. How is it really like materializing for people? But it's creating unsafe environments for trans and non-binary people to exist in the church. And the world. Yeah, in the world. At the same time that like record numbers of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation is sweeping the country right now. I remember looking at the United States and being like, I can't believe that's all happening. But then it's like, it's happening across Canada now too. Like no one is immune to this. Yeah. I have a question just regarding what you said about the Vatican issuing a statement. So when the Vatican issues a statement about some various thing, or if you're like, what is the Vatican's stance on LGBTQ people? What's the Vatican's stance on transubstantiation? Is it expected for the churches around the world, if they are Catholic churches, is it expected that they fall in line to what the Vatican is saying? Or is it more just like a guideline they can choose whether or not to do it? So I think it's complicated by like, like the Vatican is the end all be all with the Pope being Christ's representative of church, like on earth. So any like responses or like doctrine or dogma that's coming from the Pope coming from the Vatican is Catholicism. And that's why, especially when Pope Francis has like made gestures of welcoming and affirmation for LGBTQ plus people, although limited and clearly not enough and not systematically a lot of people are saying that's a specific change but it's the the vatican itself and the papal seat of catholic leadership is like a sort of government to itself um Mm -hmm. so some decisions are made through governmental authority of like different groups of people who are put in charge largely white catholic men who are put Mm -hmm. in positions of power and leadership so then it trickles down to everything else it's the same thing where, yeah, it, I think there's a like a specific line between like formal scripture and like papal document, but they're like super close, razor mm-hmm. thin. <laughs> yeah. If you think about other like maybe Protestant religions, like does, do any other religions really have something like that? No, where, like, this it's... was one of the biggest like critiques of why the Catholics weren't real Christians. When I was oh God, Sarah's <laughs> always talking about yeah. that. <laughs> Everything I know about Catholicism, we've joked, but it's true, is from the lens of a Baptist that does not accept Catholicism. <laughs> That's amazing. That's like hilariously amazing. I know. Especially yeah. sometimes she teaches me stuff about Catholicism that I didn't know. And she's like, "That's the only reason I know is because I was told that they were wrong. And this yeah. is why. Oh, that's too good. Okay. So that's why there's a lot of conflict within the church today. Um, so my research about um, veiling traditions actually ties because a great deal of the people of the young women who are adopting these veiling traditions are doing so along with rosaries, scapulars, miraculous medals as part of this radical traditionalist Catholic sect within the church itself. So that's where the issue is coming up. The previous Pope was very much aligned with like this pre-Vatican II mentality of like easing restrictions on Catholics around the world to be able to practice the Latin Mass, to be able to practice it entirely in Latin with chanting, facing away from the congregation. But that is why there's a lot of conflict, because currently Pope Francis is pushing back against this and reinforcing the legitimacy of the Second Vatican Council and saying, oh my gosh, like, no, 
like we, we made these changes in the 1960s so that women didn't have to have their heads covered when they entered the church so that all of the masses were going to be said in the vernacular language um, so that we wouldn't be doing these traditions. And that's creating a schism because then like radical traditionalist people that are pushing back against that are saying, well, then he's not my Pope. Like then he's not the representative of Christ on earth. Then he's not my representative. And then again, that complicates the whole idea of, well, he is and what it means to be Catholic is very much tied to the papal seat of power yeah. in of itself. Wow. Okay. I kind of wanted to ask about your research that you're doing now. So you said you interviewed some people within the seminary. Do you think that queer people are attracted to the seminary? Because I know that like for like acceptance or just to give them some sort of inner peace, do you think that you're going to find more people within the seminary that are queer or that are going there to find that sense of purpose within the Catholic church and within their faith? From my perspective and from the research I've conducted, I can't say that I distinctly know. I will say that in the past, the life of men and women religious and people religious was in some ways views as a refuge because it was very much same-sex living um, and same-sex relationships existed within those living situations. Really? Well, you mentioned nuns before. <laughs> I think, yeah, I would love for you to just elaborate on that. I'm just going to pull up the book so I get it right. So what it's called is Lesbian Nuns Breaking the Silence. And it's been out for a good amount of time now. And in each of these stories, a nun describes her experience and path in and out of a convent and finding and discovering truth within herself. So it's very much myth shattering that like convent life, just as we have learned about men who are living in religious communities, especially Catholic communities, are sexually active. It's about women that were finding a home within religious environments and Catholic convents. So big shout out to that book as well. But I will also say that one of the other things that I found is just as you had pointed out, Jessica, earlier, the people that I've spoken to, and again, it's only been a few amount of people. So I don't know if it's representative of major experiences, but they've spoken to how there is this emphasis on celibacy within the Catholic tradition for priests, for nuns, for brothers, that very much aligns itself with the majority Catholic view on like, quote unquote, homosexuality. So very much in the politics of, well, if you don't practice, so the hate, the sin, not the center mentality yeah. of like, yeah. we're yeah. only really going to persecute you or God's only going to look down on you if you're practicing and engaging in this form of sex. And so a lot of people in and outside of religious life have like committed themselves to this life of celibacy as they see as the answer to deal with this kind of like dissonance that the church is reinforcing that you can't be queer and Catholic. So I don't know if I would say that's like representative of everyone, but I have definitely encountered people who feel that way. And I've encountered people that feel that way in the evangelical movement. They're like, conversion therapy is bad. We can't change you, but you have to be celibate. If you're SSA, same sex. If you're same sex attracted, your identity should be in Christ. I don't mean to laugh. I don't mean to laugh to say that's valid at all. But have you always ever watched the movie, but I'm a cheerleader? I have watched part of it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This is like one of the coming of age lesbian movies that like you're supposed to watch. You get your lesbian card and then they, um, (laughs) yeah. um, I will just say like that was one of those things where I never watched that until about a year ago because I was still in the understanding of like 
The house that I was raised in, I will say my parents are incredibly affirming and welcoming. But the only representation I had growing up of like queer people at all was the birdcage. So I didn't even know that like queer women existed. I was like, I guess this is just a thing for men. That was my only representation. Because oh mine was the OC. Oh yeah, the OC. Mar- Marissa <laughs> and Alex on the OC. That's the first time yes. that I saw like a female relationship. Yeah. So I didn't really know that queer women existed. It was one of those funny things where I got to college and like my French group was so nice and so affirming. And like, I came up like, again, this was happening at the time where I was like, don't have gay thoughts, like don't have any thoughts of sexual desire whatsoever. Just totally pure of yeah. mind and body. Just what? disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> so like when I started to like break down those barriers, I was like, this is a real thing that exists. Um, and it was also hard because again, in this Catholic church growing up in the early 2000s, their policy along with purity culture was like gay people just don't exist. Like we're worried that if we talk about them at all during the church, it's going to influence somebody else to get interested. (laughs) And then (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so I didn't even know. I like had no until I got to college and I was learning about these things and met other queer people, I like didn't understand that like what was even going on. Yeah. No idea. I'm curious too about Sarah because so Sarah and I attended the same Christian summer camp and we worked there yes and while working there we got a lot of our purity culture teachings i'd say the majority of mine came from that camp confessing that i'd made out with someone to the director i told you oh my god yes she texted me this the other day how she said that she made out it was spin the bottle in a basement and he stuck his tongue in my mouth that was it like (laughs) that was my first kiss i was 15 and I felt super guilty about it and it got around. Everyone was like, oh my God, did you hear what's, or oh my gosh, did you hear what Sarah did? And then, (laughs) and then like this older mentor that we had at camp was like, you need to tell the director about this. The director of the camp who's like a 40 year old guy. (laughs) Yeah. So it's so awkward. I'm just like in his office and I'm like telling him about that. And like, what is he thinking? Well, it's funny at that point because like I had also kissed people, Sarah, and I was working there and nobody cared. (laughs) Like I I was held to a very high standard by people. I don't know why. They knew I was a lost cause. They they, they had hope (laughs) for you. So they were like, you can let her go. You can let her go. It's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. So what I was going to ask about summer camp was we got a lot of messages about purity culture at summer camp. What as you, Sarah, like being queer, because I have no context for this being heterosexual and all of my issues are surrounding heterosexuality and purity culture. Did they ever talk about lesbians? Did they ever talk about gay men? You didn't realize maybe that you were a lesbian because you just like couldn't even physically go there in your mind never not like do you ever remember thinking about that at at camp specifically Well, I remember that there were people that we were like ooh, like maybe that guy's gay and I remember it's always a guy but to speak to your question about my experience I do remember that there was one girl that worked there that had made out with a girl before And this was the era of like Katy Perry's song, like I kissed a girl and I like it. But to me, lesbianism was just, it was fetishized. It it was very much through the the male cis heterosexual view of like women are hot and lesbian porn is something that guys like to look at. And so to me, my experience is seeing the only time I would have seen girls kiss would be like when someone got way too drunk and, oh, did you hear so-and-so they made out in front of the guys like they're showing off. So that was my whole view of lesbian sexuality or like as a queer woman, that was the only thing that I saw. And I guess for me, I just, the way it manifested for me was like being pure was really easy. Like if I ever dated a guy, like I didn't kiss him and that wasn't a thing. And I was just like, I don't get why people like 
why are people having such a hard time with this? Like, no, it was the same for me. I was in high school and I had my first and only boyfriend ever. (laughs) And like, we only played Scrabble. He would come over to my house and we played Scrabble and watched movies. And I was like, I had a boyfriend. And then my parents were like, we never saw the signs. And I was like, all the signs were there. (laughs) All of them. Oh, yeah. And then for me, like when I became sexually active, alcohol was always involved. And then like that same week I was sexually assaulted. So I think I would have figured it out earlier if it weren't for that friggin' rape. I'm pretty sure I would have figured it out. And I know I shouldn't laugh about it, but like it you can laugh. You're allowed to laugh at your own trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. For for, like the longest time I was just because I had PTSD and flashbacks. And the only time I could like physically have sex was when I was drunk. And so to me, I was just like, it's really hard because of the trauma that I went through. But then when I didn't have as many like active symptoms, and then I was still having sex with men and really not enjoying it. And you were also raised in this environment where like this didn't even exist. So I can see why it took you a long time to get there. It wasn't physically an option. And I mean, like the cost of it. Obviously, I'm, I'm happy with my life and the decisions I've made, but like it was really, really, really hard. There's relationships that like there's people that I don't talk to anymore. I think like with time, things get better. But I also think just growing up in the time when we did, because like there was like gay marriage was legalized earlier in Canada. It was 2005, which is great. 15 years of life growing up and that not even being a legal option and not having representation. I think representation is huge. And that's why I think the queer and Catholic oral project, I think that that is so important because so for me, I created a space online. It's a community on Reddit and it's called like late bloomer lesbians. And I think there's like 80,000 people that are subscribed to it now. I don't really go on it much anymore. So that's awesome. Yeah. And so there's something so powerful about it's like that self-gaslighting that you're talking about. Like maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm just creating this situation in my head and I'm crazy. And especially like people, it's just the classic question. Like, how did you not know? You feel like you have to have an answer for someone when it's like, it's not just one thing. But I mean, to myself, I was like beating myself up for how was I not more self-aware? Because when I look back, like all of the signs are there. But even us being so close, I would have had no idea. There was no context for it. There was none. It's just, it's interesting to look back. Do you think that if you had today's context, I guess this is a question for both of you. If you had today's context, TikTok, Instagram, late bloomer lesbians on Reddit, do you think that you would may have known sooner? Or do you think that maybe the church would have sheltered you even more? Like, what do you think is happening to kids nowadays? It's pretty hard to shelter them at this point. I think it would be different because I think what comes down to is that when you're taught that like the creator of the universe created man and woman in his image and he created woman as the afterthought to be the one that's supporting man in his role and under man's authority. Like when that is the story that the entire creation of the your worldview is built on, it's very hard to deviate from anything. There's no other narratives. And I think that's why like even us doing our silly little episodes when we're like, we're David and Jonathan gay, we're Ruth and Naomi gay, like was Paul gay? I love trying to take a queer lens and just apply it to everything now because I never had that. 
growing up. And I think it definitely would have been different at this point. But I think you could say that for anything, right? Yeah, I think the same for me. It's one of those things where I often wonder if that one person who I interviewed hadn't used the term purity culture, would I be here where I am today? Because for me, immediately after I heard that term and I've been curious what it meant, and after a conversation with the professor who runs the project, I turned to Instagram for the first time. I wasn't really socially active on Instagram for a while, but I learned about the like for you section. And like the algorithm clearly learned that it didn't what purity culture was. <laughs> it knows. It knows. Um, so for me, I, I agree with you, Sarah, as well. I think it's one of those things where, especially within the Catholic church, I have a little bit of a different understanding growing up in a Polish community. It's very matriarchal. So like oh. the women of the house, like cut the checks. They manage the finances. Love it. The priest in our parish <laughs> growing up, like he was, I would say, late 40s, early 50s, his mother still sent him a check every single week. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that was normal. It was totally normal for my community. But yeah, so for me, I would think, like, growing up in the culture that I did, I remember distinctly that I thought purity culture hadn't impacted me. But when the shame and fear of, like, revealing that I had, like, thoughts of other girls and thoughts of other women like got to the point where I felt even so uncomfortable about confessing it in confession for fear that then a priest would go behind my back and would tell my parents um, and would spread it around. Like that fear, I believe, would still have controlled my experience of it. And I think within Catholicism, very much the same, because so much of the philosophy is rooted in you give up so much of your life, you're living it for another life. I would even think about how we modify our diet, how we modify our dress, how we interact with other people when we go to Holy Day of of Obligation Masses. So I think for me, growing up in the community I did where Catholicism was just interwoven with everything, every aspect of life and material culture, it would have been difficult if I had not moved away for college to deconstruct my experiences. There's something about being transplanted and then around people that have different life experiences. Like you said, you were adopted into a lovely queer friend group. And Yeah, I will say I didn't come out while I was in Muncie, Indiana for fear of my safety. I did go to school in the district belonging to Mike Pence. Oh my God. And I think me coming full circle as a queer woman that learned about purity culture and deconstructed her experiences is such like a... yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's an F you a little bit. Yeah. Oh my God. Mike Pence, though. Like, yeah. The the, the Pence rule that he can't be in a room with a woman other than his wife. Like, oh my God. I mean, we could deconstruct that for an hour. Like, that is wild and on so So, many levels. Wow. Yeah. And how, like, how are you doing? Like, the United States isn't great right now. That is such a sweet question. You're like, we're checking in with you, Emma. Yeah. I I think for me, I'm doing okay. I like live in a big, like metropolitan area, which I think has provided like a bubble for myself of like, there is a queer community here. I will say, even though there are like many gay bars in the community and city where I live, there are many in New York, many in Chicago. I went to school in Muncie, Indiana, which was Mike Pence's district, which had the oldest operating gay bar in the state predating Stonewall. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) But I will say that I think right now, like even myself, we're very much in crisis mode. So my parents have always been supportive of me. And I really feel called to do this research because I'm hopeful that somebody will feel the representation and know that 
they are loved and understood in their own right in whatever phase that they're in or whatever stage that they're in because it's not a phase it's permanent Um, (laughs) but whatever phase of coming out but uh, yeah I think right now even myself and my parents have been like you need to be safe and you need to be cautious because even though you're in a metropolitan area like what you're doing there are people in the United States that are so upset about LGBTQ plus people not even being themselves but just existing that like people are getting hurt when I went to the outreach conference this past summer, there was very much the understanding and my parents have been so supportive of like, just be careful. We even had protests at the conference itself. Wow. Um, but it feels Ugh. very unsafe. It yeah. feels unsafe just to exist in this space. So yeah, because it doesn't have to be someone beating someone up or making threats of violence to feel unsafe. Like it's comments that you're just like, you remember, you're like, oh, like my existence is something that people think is very wrong. Like Mm -hmm. it's depressing sometimes if you kind of spend too much time reflecting on that or thinking about that. Is there anything else that we should discuss before we go? Because we're almost at the two hour mark. Yeah, it's funny. I had all these questions. We didn't even need them. I think the big thing for me is like purity culture still exists. And I am of the mindset that purity culture is the like systematic control and regulation of different people's bodies, especially focused on women's bodies and queer bodies. And so from my perspective, especially in the United States, where I'm living in a place post the fall of Roe v. Wade, I'm living in a place with like record numbers of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation about getting gender affirming health care, about getting compulsory sex education that includes LGBTQ plus issues and realities and identities it's still alive and well. And I think that's my big thing is I'm increasing representation, but I also want more and more people to talk about this so that they know that it's still going on. It's still not okay. And we still have a while to go until we can no longer feel its effects in culture. And also it's not publicly permissible for this to still keep happening. I couldn't agree more. And I think that like, honestly, purity culture was one of the reasons why we started doing this podcast and like we jump around and do all kinds of topics but I really like getting back to this topic because I just think it's so all-encompassing and you're right it's still alive and well and like how do we smash it but you know what's hopeful just the way that we have such powerful women in culture now like I'm a huge Swifty Jessica saw Taylor Swift but like we have it's no longer like she's gonna break records and it's not gonna be like oh the best woman for this like it's the best person and Like, I just think that we have the Barbie movie came out. Like my favorite experience and favorite part that has come out with the Barbie movie. And there are many is like queer women reflecting on how they engaged with Barbies and how their Barbies were like queer themselves. So like, for me, I talk with a lot of people who are like, yeah, my queer Barbie scissored all the time. Like my, (laughs) like my Barbies, they kissed all the time, both for the reason that like Ken's were rarer. And a lot of people didn't have as many Kens, but also me as like weird history, like lover kid, really interested in religion, like had, I think, removed the head of and had like mummified a Ken with toilet paper. And we had held a funeral for this Ken. And then he was, <laughs> and he was mummified and he was buried. Oh my God. <laughs> I love so it. So I'd love the experiences of people coming out because very much Barbie is like, a modifier and a world in which we create so it's incredibly interesting to see how people experience those things that is so funny because like yeah when I think about my Barbies they were all just like shopping and talking about boys like (laughs) mine mine just we were just rearranging the house and going to work 
It was, that was all they were doing. I love it. <laughs> Is that all you do now, Sarah? <laughs> yeah, <pretty much. laughs> That's all I want to do. <laughs> we want you back on again. We haven't yeah. discussed it, but I'm just saying be. this. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on and giving us your time. This was so awesome. Do you want to plug anything right now before we sign off? Oh yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say is that thank you so much for everyone who's listened. I know I, <laughs> I have a, a number of different interests, but if you, <laughs> if you ever felt that something spoke to you in this conversation, feel free to reach out to me at eocslick at gmail.com about the queer and Catholic oral history project. We're still collecting interviews and I hope to do so for the foreseeable future. But if you're also interested in talking about intersectional folk Catholic dimensions, queer Marian art, or anything of the sort, my door is always open to engage in these conversations in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Thanks so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. And thank you for your time. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.